So in that sense, the internet is at this very fragile moment where the recognition that this is an emergent property where it's really like the monetary system in which it only works if we all agree that a dollar is worth exchanging. And the moment people stop agreeing that a dollar is worth exchanging, the currency's in trouble because people won't use it anymore. The same thing happens, it happens to be true of the internet in this sense. The moment people stop thinking that that consensus is worth continuing, that's the moment that the internet starts to slip away from us. And we see people starting to let that go. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Andrew Sullivan, who is the president and CEO of the Internet Society, a leading advocacy organization for an open and free internet. He has dedicated much of his career to internet architecture and standards, serving as chair of the Internet Architecture Board in 2015 and 2016. Our conversation centers around the many facets of the internet. What is the nature of the internet? How is it distinct from the web? Who holds the power on the internet? We also talk about the domain name system, emergent properties, important challenges, global accessibility, and the future of the internet. I think a great starting point is to start off with the question of how you think about the internet as a technology in comparison to other major technologies that have existed throughout the arc of human history. How do you situate the internet in relation to the broad strokes of human history? Well, that's a pretty big canvas. Compared to the wheel, it's probably not the biggest invention we ever had, but it's a pretty transformative technology. One thing that is really interesting to me about the internet is the way its name contains this germ about what it's like. This is one of the things that I have noticed a lot in, in recent public discussions about the internet and so on, because we talk about it as though it's one thing. It looks like a countdown in a, in a sentence, you know, the internet, and you've got one and you can move it around and pick it up. But the internet is not like that. In its name, it has this hint because it's a network of networks, the internet. And because it's a network of networks and those networks can also be made of other networks, which can be made of other networks and infinitely all the way down, it's really a kind of agglomeration. It's a, a sort of emergent phenomenon of all of the networks that are participating 
in communicating with one another together, just using this sort of common subset of protocols. And that's not the way we think about it, but it's really actually quite useful to keep that in mind because it's a little bit like talking about the traffic, you know, the traffic in the street. It's not like, you know, you could pick up the traffic and move it to the left and it'd be fine. It's not a thing like that. It's this property of a whole bunch of other things all acting independently. And if they are coordinated in a reasonable way, then the traffic flows smoothly. And if there's too much traffic, then you have a problem. And if nobody follows the rules in the traffic, then you have a different problem. You know, these are all properties of traffic, well-regulated traffic, poorly regulated traffic, traffic, understand the road. You can always tell if you're in pedestrian traffic, for instance, when you've got a group of people who are all from very different backgrounds because they don't all follow the same rules. Whereas if you're in a place, you know, where things are very orderly and, you know, there's a lot of homogeneity in the population, everybody walks on the same side, follows the same patterns and so on. A good example of this, if you've ever been on the tube in London and you're on the escalator, you can always spot the person who's not, you know, a Londoner, right? Because they're standing on the left. And this is a great crime in the London tube system. Like you're not allowed to stand on the left. That's where you move. And this is a thing about these kinds of emergent properties that everybody sort of needs to follow the same, the same patterns. If people don't, or if there's, you know, sort of deep division in what the thing is like, then you have a, a kind of violation and the whole system breaks down. And so in that sense, the internet is both a technology or maybe I should say the internet is three things because it's a technology in itself. It's an agglomeration of various technologies, and it's also a social phenomenon. It's all three of those things at once. That's a little unlike a lot of other technologies. There are a few historically that happen that way, but we often use things like broadcast television or radio, or we use the telephone system or other kinds of models like that to think about the internet. The difference, of course, is that none of those have this property where anybody can participate and anyone is an immediate participant in the system and is both a contributor and a consumer of the system at the same time. The phone company ran the phone network, but there isn't the internet company that runs the internet. That's just not how that system works. You did mention the wheel in terms of impact. It seemed clear to you that the wheel was more important than the internet. How how come or why? What was the underlying reasoning? Well, I, I guess I think of the wheel as sort of one of those ur technologies, right, that humans have. It's a little like dog breeding. Dogs aren't a natural thing in themselves. They're a consequence of humans breeding them. But of course, humans are the way we are because we started hanging out with dogs. I mean, w- without them, our societies would have worked very, very differently in the sort of most ancient archaeological ways that we understand. The wheel sort of shows up in the same way, right? It's it's such an early technology that it's almost like the wheel made us as well. Maybe there is a, a similarity there in that in our current existence, to a certain extent, at least in the places with connectivity and so on, but increasingly even places without, we are internet creatures. We're creatures that depend on this sort of very high availability of connectivity. Things that are totally just assumed now were complete science fiction when I was growing up. I'm a little over 50. The connectivity that we have now, it turns out to have all kinds of consequences for how we understand what it's like to be in the society and so on. Great example of this actually has come to light. I'm, I'm from Canada and in Ontario, I am from Toronto. 
the province uh, of Ontario decided to to plan all of its vaccination activities around online sign up. This seemed like such a totally normal thing, I'm sure, for the people who are planning, you know, it's just the kind of thing you can assume. But of course, there are, even in pretty rich places like Canada, there are people who don't have this kind of connectivity. Frequently, they're the people that you most want to reach when you're trying to do vaccination because they're the populations that are most vulnerable. You know, the most elderly, the poorest populations, the people who have, you know, various developmental difficulties and so on, they all really needed to be reached. And people just didn't have a plan for that. They basically planned for the technology to be there. And so in that sense, we may now be in the era where the internet is almost like the wheel that you just sort of depend on people having access to this thing. If they don't, that's a violation of the cultural assumption of, of everybody else. And in that sense, of course, the wheel is that kind of technology for us. We don't imagine what it's like for somebody who, who can't access the wheel. That isn't a technology that we wonder whether there's adequate wheel distribution around the world. We, we figure that people probably can get all the wheels. Speaking of internet, how do you define internet and how does it differ from the web? Oh, so this is a, boy, this is a really interesting question. How many hours do we have? This is actually a really hard question. And you would think, you know, I work for the Internet Society. You would think that I would have a nice, crisp, glib answer for you um, for that. And the problem is I can't have a, a crisp answer for you. And it goes back to this very point that I was making before about how the internet is this emergent property. Because even what is on the internet and what is not, what is part of the internet and what is not, sort of expands and contracts depending on where you're standing and what you're looking at. So in one important sense, the internet is just a, a, a sort of set of, of interconnection possibilities. And so you're on the internet if and only if you can send a, an internet protocol packet to another node. And those two nodes are able to do that. This sort of transitive property of all of the nodes that can send internet packet protocols to one another, that's the internet. And that's a very geeky sort of technical um, view at this. It's of course, nothing that anybody means when they say, you know, the internet is down. That's not true. Of course, what that, what that actually means is I don't have access to the internet right now. My connection is broken. And what people really mean when they say they're on the internet is usually some kind of application that they're using, some social media application, or they're using, you know, they're able to use email or they're able to use the web. The web is definitely a subset of the internet. The web is really the set of interconnected sites or interconnected systems that are able to talk to one another using web technologies. And mostly that is the hypertext transfer uh, protocol. Uh, typically these days over a secure connection, so a thing that you could go to in a, in a web browser, but also a thing most of the time when you're using a, an app on your phone under the hood, that's actually just a web browser that is just a special purpose web browser for the specific purposes of that application and no other one. Uh, so it can't do general purpose things, but it's, it's using the web underneath uh, as a technical matter. Uh, but that isn't all, all the internet, because when you use email, for instance, that's not part of the web. It's a completely different protocol. It uses different underlying infrastructure and so on. The other part about the way the internet works here is that it flexes and changes at different times. So if you think of a giant, pick your favorite giant social media platform, Facebook or Twitter or whatever you like, 
in one important sense, these are not really on the internet. They're kind of closed systems that are using the internet. They're running on top of the internet, but they're just using the internet as a, as a means of communication. And you can imagine building something like Facebook on top of a different set of protocols, like on top of the old telephone system. There will be differences, but you could, in some sense, do it because it's kind of a closed system. It's, it's a sort of closed thing. You stay inside um, that. When you get another, another referral inside your social media system, you're usually referred to another part of the social media system. In uh, Internet nerds call this a walled garden. You're inside this enclosed space. But there's another important sense in which all of these social media platforms are an active part of the internet. First of all, because people substitute what they get there uh, for the public internet. And that's actually kind of harmful to the users themselves because they're substituting something that is privately controlled for what was a previously open to anyone uh, system that anybody could manage. And so that's a, a trade. And maybe what you're doing is you're trading ease of use or the cost or whatever. But another part of it is definitely part of the internet because, for instance, as people started to depend on these various social media uh, systems, their identities in those social media systems became important. And now when you go to some random website, you will get presented with login via Gmail or login via Facebook or login via Twitter. And that's a part of that, of that social media platform that is now being exposed as infrastructure that other parts of the internet rely upon. You're not entering into Facebook when you do that. You're just authenticating. And then Facebook hands back to the rest of the internet and says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who this person is. It's fine. They don't know who you are necessarily. Of course, in many cases they do. But what they're really saying is this is an identity that I recognize. I've authenticated it. And now you can depend on that to be a stable identity that will hold on. And that means that an application that was originally a closed system, it was separate and, and apart from the rest of the internet, now starts to provide services to the rest of the internet, and it links together. And this goes back to that emergent property of the internet is all of these systems working together using these common protocols. There are these common protocols, the social media platforms implement them, and they provide that service to the rest of the internet. That is internet infrastructure. There's no question about it. It's just an important function that uh, other systems are relying on. And so that becomes part of the internet and it just gets folded in. And that's why this definition of the internet is so slippery because it depends on who's participating, how are they participating, what kind of participation is it? Is it entirely proprietary or is it using a public standard that anybody could implement or anybody could use? Those differences are what tells you whether something is in or out of the internet at any one time. It's a little bit hard to tell, oh, the internet stops here. There's no bright line. If we were to extend this, how do you think about defining the ecosystem broadly for internet? Break down the internet architecture and infrastructure, how they even correlate to each other. So I think actually that the word ecosystem is the right word here. And what's interesting to me is that the word ecosystem has sort of been stolen in recent years by a bunch of people who talk about this or that ecosystem, this or that uh, social media ecosystem, or this or that platforms ecosystem, or this or that mobile platform uh, ecosystem, and so on. 
And those things are not ecosystems at all, right? Those are parks. They're walled gardens. They're controlled. If you get onto you know, your favorite phone application download store, that is not an ecosystem. There's a gatekeeper. It's the platform owner. They make decisions about whether you're in or out. They have all kinds of rules about playing. Sometimes they change them even after the fact, and suddenly your application disappears. That is not an ecosystem. An ecosystem is something that grows and changes and adjusts depending on all of the influences that are going on to it. Humans come along and kill all the wolves and the deer um, explode in, in, in some park. And then we find, oh, actually, that was maybe a bad idea. Or maybe a bigger example is, is in Australia, right, where settlers arrived in Australia and decided, oh, we need some rabbits. They introduced rabbits. And it's like, ah, oh, that was maybe not such a good idea. And they gradually introduced additional predators and so on and have changed dramatically the ecosystem of the entire continent of Australia via these sorts of introductions. That's an ecosystem that's adapting and changing according to all of these influences. People who think they can manage an entire ecosystem are frequently disabused of this idea by the realities of nature, sort of um, picking these uh, sorts of things. So in that sense, the internet is an ecosystem or economy or one of those kinds of things that is maybe understand in a sort of grandiose way, but is not really possible to manage in a completely centralized way and a totally predictable way. You can introduce changes, but they will probably have side effects that you haven't totally predicted. And I think that's a good way to think about it. But of course, that doesn't mean that you can't influence it in any, in any way. It is a built artifact initially. It's not something, it's not something that is completely under our control because we've introduced it into the world, but it is nevertheless something that we designed. In that sense, the internet architecture has certain basic fundamental principles. And those fundamental principles are really not very, there's not very many of them. At the Internet Society, we like to call these uh, some critical properties of the internet. And there's a few of them that are, uh, from my point of view, just totally important. And one of these is this sort of building block approach. The internet designers had this idea, you're going to have little pieces, they're going to snap together in different ways. And some of those combinations are ones that you imagine. I'm sure the Lego designers, when they were inventing Lego, they had ideas in their heads about what ways people were going to put building blocks together. But if you watch people playing with Lego, they put stuff together in all kinds of ways that I'm pretty sure the designers of Lego did not totally expect. And I think that that's one of the things that's very, very interesting about the internet, that it allows you to combine stuff in ways that are unpredictable. The theorist of this, uh, Jonathan Zetran, calls this a generative property of the technology, that you can use it in new and unpredicted ways. You know, you discover, hey, you can do something new with this, and then you do it. And now you've got something new that was not predicted when the piece was designed, but it turns out it works really well that way. The internet has been very, very plastic in that sense. I mean, if you think about when the internet protocol was designed, it was the mid-1970s. The connectivity that was available for use was measured in bits per second. There was no hope that you were going to transmit high-definition movies over this kind of... I mean, it would have taken you weeks to download your favorite movie. It, it's not really a, a plausible sort of thing. But it turned out that the internet protocol was flexible enough, and, and all of the associated protocols were flexible enough to be recombined in ways that today, for instance, we could be talking over a video conference, and it's using the internet, and nothing had to change underneath that. 
And that's one of the really fundamental um, pieces of this, a totally critical property of the internet, that we have these protocols that are open, anybody can implement them. So uh, it's not something that's controlled by one corporation or one person or one government, but anybody can do it. They're small and flexible and can be recombined in this way so that you can build new things in ways that were unexpected. I think those are, you know, those are fundamental parts uh, of the architecture. One more thing I will say about this. Sometimes there's a tendency to try to think about the internet in layers. And, and there's this very famous model from OSI called the seven layer model that has all these very specific layers of parts and, you know, the parts of networking and so on. But if you look at the way we actually use the networks, this is a, a better story than it is a description of the world. It's a really nice, neat model. It's a nice way to understand things. It's probably handy for a lot of people to think about it in these layers. And, you know, oh, there's this application layer up here, and that's something that you can totally write regulations about, but this low-level thing you don't want to. But the problem is, like the example of authentication via social media shows, is that the line is not neat or bright. Sometimes it's an application and it's also a piece of infrastructure. Because of this recombination ability that the internet affords, today it might be just uh, an application and tomorrow somebody might build something on top of it that incorporates it. And now it's a piece of infrastructure too, and it can still go on being an application. That's the funny thing about how this technology it, it breathes almost the way it allows new things to uh, affect it and so on. So for that reason, the sort of architecture is the ecosystem and conversely, that it is kind of a, a system that never really completes because there's no sort of end at which we can say, oh, yeah, now the architecture is complete and it'll just live like that forever. In this paradigm, how does one even understand who are the key stakeholders and how do they interact? To some extent, this is a little like asking, oh, in our society, how do we know who the key stakeholders are? To a certain extent within a society, the key stakeholders are everyone. And you actually need to take into account everybody's considerations, all of the interests of everybody. You have to worry about those kinds of things. And you have to worry about them even if they can't have a voice for themselves, right? So for instance, we have to think about you know, if we decide to put this, I don't know, this mercury dump in this lake, uh, what's that going to do to people who come along and eat the fish out of that lake two generations from now or seven generations from now or whatever? We have to worry about that. Some of those people haven't been born yet. And yet we need to, you know, we need to consider those kinds of things. In another sense, we have to worry about people who don't have a voice because they have become uninterested or because they've been disenfranchised in some way. And you can ignore some of those things in societies for a certain length of time. Of course, every society has had people that they have excluded for, um, for periods of time. But you can only do so much of that for so long before the people who are being ignored start to know, notice, hey, wait a minute, like I have an interest here too. And they start to come and, and ask why their view isn't being taken into account. So that's one answer to this, that actually we have to worry about everybody who's on the internet and also everybody who isn't on the internet yet because probably they're going to be someday and we need to think about, okay, well, what are the consequences of this for them? There are other parts of this though, where it's relatively easy to identify, oh, who's that interested? And that's because of this other property that the internet has, that it's these small building blocks that hook together. And because it's small building blocks that hook together, you can sort of identify, okay, who's interested in this set of building blocks here? 
And now we can talk about that set and worry about how do we address this set of issues without addressing everything else at the same time. Because it's not a monolithic system, all you have to worry about are the pieces that you're changing, and you don't have to worry past the boundaries where those things have an interface with other things because the interfaces are stable. That's what the open protocols give you. Open protocols of the internet give you these places where you can say, oh, here's the protocol. Everybody has to follow the rules across this protocol place here. So I can talk only to the people behind this particular protocol and worry about how that thing functions. And everybody else can rely on the protocol itself to provide the stable, the stable function. So you can think of this as a really big system, just like if your electrical utility changes the kind of wire that they, they use to bring the power to your house. You don't have to worry about the kind of wire they're using because you've got a plug and that plug is going to remain the same. You can always plug your plug into the wall. And the only time you have to worry about that is if, for instance, somebody comes along and changes the wall plug designation for various things, which hasn't happened in North America for a long time now, has been a problem in various countries where there have been changes to the electrical code where you get incompatible plugs. That's a really big problem. Everybody has to worry about it. But if you just want to worry about, okay, how how are we going to set up the transmission line system? Really, the transmission line people have to be interested in that. And by the same token on the internet, we have these various technical pieces that really involve subsets of parts of the internet. Similarly, we've got public policy issues that involve uh, subsets of, of the internet. The mistake is when we confuse those things and we say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about the technical implications of this and we can specify whatever we want because the technology will adapt. Then you're making a, a violation across that protocol boundary. It's when you violate those boundaries that you really have to consult with everybody. And that's, that's when the, the work gets really hard. In those cases, is this one takeaway where these layers are siloed in themselves that they can evolve independently? Are there any core tensions or considerations which leads to conflicts? How does one even think about resolving those conflicts and what kind of conflicts actually can exist? The short answer to your question is yes, there are these tensions and we need to, we need to pay attention to them. And on the other hand, there are places where you can really contain those sorts of changes and, and not have to worry about it too much. I'm going to pick a, a really primitive example for the first one to make this easy. So at the lowest layer, very close to the lowest layer of your network, is this idea of physical connectivity between things and so on. The rules around how the electrical connections are made between computers are mostly defined by the IEEE, the uh, electrical engineers. They're a standards organization that specifies this. And they have a specification for a technology called Ethernet, which is, is relatively old. We still use it today, and you probably are using it somewhere in your own network um, at home because you usually use it with these so-called RJ45 things with the multi-pin plugs. It looks like a really fat telephone jack, and you plug it in to the back of your router or whatever it is. It turns out that what they did in order to make Wi-Fi, which is the wireless networking that we use so much, they just pretended that it's an electrical connection. So from the point of view of your computer, 
your Wi-Fi connector and your Ethernet connector are the same kind of thing. And as far as your computer is concerned, the Wi-Fi, the network service that comes across the radio waves that come through the air, and the network uh, connectivity that comes through a wire that plugs into your computer, they're just the same. You don't have to worry about that at all. So that's a really good example. I'm obviously sort of oversimplifying a little bit, but that is, uh, it's, it's a good example of something that was really tightly contained. The engineers looked at that and they said, we've got a good interface. Let's stick with it and not worry about this. Now, there are consequences outside of that. Like, for instance, Wi Fi depends on using radio waves and radio spectrum has to be regulated because different devices can't use the same spectrum at the same time. So they now have to go off and talk to the radio telephone people who say, okay, this is the kind of spectrum you can use for this. And this is the kind of spectrum that you can't. And so we have various bandwidths of radios uh, that can provide Wi-Fi. And that is all regulated by various treaties and so on. The electrical specification is specified by, by the IEEE. And this all looks the same. Users of the internet don't need to worry about, oh, like, is this a wired connection or a Wi-Fi connection? You, you don't really need to worry about that in the sense that you don't have to, you know, have a completely different understanding of what kinds of things you're doing. It's just another kind of network from your point of view. And so that's a good example of something that is controlled and it's got different stakeholders. We don't have to talk to the, to the radio people when we're using wire, but we have to talk to the radio people when we're using radios. And that's how that works. There are other examples where it looks like it's a minor technical problem. Then it turns out, actually, it's really a business and economics problem and political problem and a bunch of other things. A good, although very old example of this now is the domain name system. Domain name system, the names that you're probably familiar with on the web, you've got, you know, www.example.com. These are part of a URL, you know, a, a web page that you might be familiar with, or it's part of an email address that you're sending something to Andrew at example.com or whatever. Those sorts of systems are dependent on this domain name system, which is the big computer naming system that the internet has. And it does a bunch of things, but one of the things it does is it converts those names, which are easy for humans to remember, into IP addresses, which are not very easy for people to remember because they're long strings of numbers. We're not very good at remembering long strings of numbers. It's funny, actually, this is a total aside, but you know, when I was growing up, you would memorize telephone numbers. And I know a large number of telephone numbers from when I was young. I barely know my own telephone number now, right? Because I have a device that remembers all of these things for me. And I don't actually need to tell people what my telephone number is most of the time. I instead tell, you know, here's this card or whatever, and, and they remember it. And they remember it in their device. That's one of the things that the domain name system or DNS was designed to provide, this sort of easy way to remember, oh, I want to go to example.com or I want to go to, to somewhere else. Luminary.fm uh, is another, another example of this. For internet people, for the nerds who invented this, and I should say, this was created in the very earliest days of the internet. This is like in the early 1980s is when this was invented. That's like prehistory on the internet almost, right? I mean, this is not prehistory, but maybe like, I don't know, the Greek empire or something like that. It's really, really a long time ago. It works. It continues to work. And it's a system that functions for a large number of people, and we continue to use it. For computer scientists and internet people, 
this was a nice way to arrange things. It was a hierarchical database. So you have .com and .org and so on at the top. And then underneath that, you have additional names. And so you've got you know example.com and you've got example.org. And example.com and example.org are not the same thing because these are computer science people. And so they understand this is a hierarchical namespace and common org are just different places. And so there's no problem for it. But only computer scientists really think of the world as organized in this neat hierarchical uh, sort of system. Ordinary humans think of these names as words, use them as words, and use them as identifiers for things that are related to one another. The result of this is that in the 1990s, when the internet was becoming commercialized, domain names became this very hot topic. And they were not a hot topic because of the technical problems of the domain name system. I mean, there were technical problems with the domain name system, and there still are. They were a hot topic because of policy issues. Who gets to own this name? How much should it cost? How long should you get to own it? What if I have a trademark on that name and you have a trademark on that name in a different country and we both want the name? How are we going to resolve that dispute? What are we going to do if somebody sets up, gets the first registration on this name and they don't recognize your trademark and they're in a different country and we don't have agreement with that country? They're putting a porn site on your precious uh, trademark or whatever. All of these policy issues were super important questions about how to operate this. The result of that sort of set of boiling issues is what created the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN, which is this giant coordinating body that is there really to solve what is a tiny problem. In some sense, ICANN is a not-for-profit, $100 million a year corporation that exists to manage a handful of small text files that would all fit handily on your phone. You know, it involves big meetings of lots and lots of people and lots of stakeholder consultation and so on. And it sounds absurd until you realize that none of the problem here has to do with managing these files. They would be trivial to manage as a file management problem. Anybody could do it. The problem is you need everybody to agree on how to do it when nobody has the legal jurisdiction to impose their solution on anyone else, because the internet is made up of all of these disparate networks that all need to cooperate with one another voluntarily in order to function at all. If they don't cooperate voluntarily, we lose the internet, right? It stops being the internet. It's just your network. So that's a good example of a case where it turns out everything is really a policy problem and it looks like a technical problem. It's a good example. And we see that repeated over and over again. Many of the concerns that people have today that involve, how are we going to stop terrorist content from appearing online? And this gets described as a technical problem. Oh, we've got to use hashes, and we're going to build a giant hash database of all of the terrorist content that is logically possible, whatever that would mean. And then we're going to uh, share those hashes with one another, and we'll be able to stop all of the bad content from, from coming online. But the actual problem you have is, what is bad content? That is not a technical problem. That is, in no sense, is there a technical answer to what is content that nobody should be exposed to? Because, for instance, the very same set of video frames showing somebody being tortured and murdered in the desert might be a propaganda video for the torturer and murderer, or it might be a record of a journalist having been killed by an army. One of those is news that you want to preserve so that you can later 
take those people to court for war crimes, and you need to keep it. In the other sense, it might be a propaganda video that you don't want anybody to see. And if you just make this a blanket decision, that is, oh, well, this is a technical question. Do these frames conform to this set of set of algorithms? You miss the entire point of the dispute, which is a social one. What do we want to do about this kind of content that is extraordinarily harmful in one sense and extraordinarily valuable to our ability to stop those kinds of harms in another? So I, I just want to talk a little bit about who holds power on the internet. And this is a very controversial topic in some quarters. We appreciate that. But it's a really important one. And the United States of America happens to have this structure where there are checks and balances, which ended up being really important for the stability and prosperity of the nation. And if you think about the prosperity of the internet, which we all care so much about, it's important that no single actor has disproportionate or undue influence or ability to influence an outcome or direction. Give us a sense of your view today to the extent it's possible of who holds power on the internet. It's a really valuable question that we need to ask ourselves. I think one of the critical issues about the internet, about its design, is one of its strengths here. Uh, this is uh, something that's very interesting to me. I, I was involved, uh, I was part of the Internet Architecture Board, which is a, a group of people who try to do some things about the internet architecture during a period when the, the responsibilities for a, a set of what are really clerical functions was, was wound down in the United States. So historically, this uh, ICANN, this uh, body that I mentioned, they had a contract with the, UN, uh, with the U.S. Department of Commerce through the National Telecommunications uh, and Information Administration. That contract was for the IANA functions, the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority. They had this contract, and, and this is a critical sort of coordination function. Uh, we could do it without a coordination function, but we decided to have a coordination function. So like the, the domain name space has this has this tree structure. A tree structure is just a mathematical structure that happens to have a common root. And there's a, a similar set of these for IP addresses. Everybody has an IP address when they're connected on the internet. And these all come from one giant hierarchical uh, sort of database. Again, didn't have to be that way, but it was the way we did it at the time in the 1970s. And it turns out to be pretty useful. And so this was a simple sort of function for maintaining this kind of stuff, and, and ICANN continues to do it. They were doing it under this contract with the United States government. And what people thought when this contract was being ended at uh, near the end of the Obama administration was that the United States was giving up the control of the internet. They were giving it away. I remember going to Washington and talking to senators who were quite convinced that this was the internet, you know, was being given away. It was a critical point for me to make, and it's a critical point to make now, that because of the way the internet works, this voluntary network of networks that it is, there is no authority in the sense that governments normally think of it. There's no way for you to say, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that on the internet. Because if enough people don't agree with you, they'll just go and do it another way. Because they can go and create a different voluntary agreement among themselves and go and do it a different way over there. 
Now, unfortunately, because of the way the internet works, if people do that right now, there's no coordination between those two groups. And what we will have is a, a split in the internet. So this consensus kind of model is really, really important under those circumstances. We're fortunate that in the 1990s, when this was getting commercialized, people recognized, oh, actually, this is the reality of this power, that nobody really has it, and yet it's important that we all recognize it, and so we all have to get along. And if we don't all get along, then we're going to break this system and we won't get the advantages of it. The difference today is that we're in a world where a, a bunch of people think it would be just fine to break that consensus and break away and do their own thing. I think there's a group of people who believe that. And I think there's a second group of people who don't understand that they really don't have this power. They don't have the power to insist that other people do it their way. If the other people don't like that, they will break away and do things their own way and we will get a fracturing of the internet. So in that sense, the internet is at this very fragile moment where the recognition that this is an emergent property where it's really like the monetary system in which it only works if we all agree that a dollar is worth exchanging. And the moment people stop agreeing that a dollar is worth exchanging, the currency is in trouble because people won't use it anymore. The same thing happens, it happens to be true of the internet in this sense. The moment people stop thinking that that consensus is worth continuing, that's the moment that the internet starts to slip away from us. And we see people starting to let that go. We do have a problem in the contemporary internet because there's a lot of consolidation on the internet, corporations that are much larger than, let's face it, any corporation ever has been, uh, you know, capitalized in ways that most corporations have never been. They have these spheres of influence that extend much further. And so they've got outsized capability to, you know, sort of tell people, well, I don't care if you don't like this, we're going to do it that way anyway. And that is dangerous because it chips away at that agreement. We've all got this consensus. We're going to use this system this way. If somebody starts saying, no, we're not going to do that, then we have a problem. We also have at least one country in the world who has a domestic addressable market of like a billion and a half people. Uh, and that market is fairly tightly controlled because of the legal system that they live under. And the effect of this is that as a nation state, that is a nation state that can simply say, no, we're not going to play this way. We're going to do it our own way. And they've got enough domestic market power to make that sustainable anyway. Because, you know, in any market, a billion and a half people is a lot of people. That's a lot of consumers. And so that means that we're in a, a very delicate situation. And you're quite right, actually, who holds the power is part of the question here. The other part of the question is, who accepts, and really how many people accept, that nobody holds this power, and if somebody holds the power, then we will all lose it. And that, to me, is the part that is really most, most frightening about it. It's just like if you're in a situation of anarchy on, on the road. I don't know whether you've ever been on a road where basically nobody follows the traffic rules. You know, It's terrifying because you never know what's going to happen. I was traveling. I won't say where it was. It was not in North America. It was at night and I was driving and I didn't speak the local language. And this person had come to pick me up. We were driving on a divided carriageway. You know, the driver crossed the median and was going against the traffic in the, the shoulder of this lane and honking the whole time to warn people that he was coming on and driving against the traffic at full speed. I was sure I was going to die. 
but we were not alone <laughs> in the traffic pattern. We were in a, in a row of traffic that was all driving along this way. It appeared to be just a, like a local optimization. And I thought that this was the end of my life, but we made it out. It seems that these kinds of things emerge. But what was the lesson that I took from that is at least locally, everybody knew that this was the kind of thing that was going to happen because none of the cars in our line of traffic got into an accident. This just worked, much to my amazement. It seemed to be something that people accepted, but it was a local acceptance of the way this rule worked. But if you had tried to do that with a bunch of drivers from North America, it would have been, you know, there would have been an accident without a doubt. Watching some of my neighbors, I, I can't believe they can get into the parking lot. It seems to me that that kind of problem that we have, that people need to believe in the sort of local rules and follow them or everything falls apart. And that's where the, this question of power is both a question, can you impose power on this system? And also, can you accept that you've got to live within these rules? It's not completely infinitely plastic because you've got to depend on the agreements with one another. Let's talk about what all this enables. And maybe a good starting point for that is the nature of the internet. Just would love to hear your thoughts on what does the internet enable and how and why is it different from prior technologies like we touched on initially? One thing that's really important to recognize is that the internet is designed to be sort of exploratory. It's designed to be something that you can put together in new and interesting ways, and therefore you can do interesting things with it. In that sense, it invites you to come and make you know, new opportunities out of the internet. It invites you to say, here, come and connect this stuff. It invites connectivity. These days, many of us, and I include myself in this, are profoundly worried about the sort of security and safety consequences of all the Internet of Things devices that we're connecting to the Internet. And yet, at the same time, I think when we talk about that, we fail to acknowledge the other part of it, which is it's just totally marvelous that we have these capabilities. It is completely wonderful that I am in a, in a position, you know, if I'm trapped far away from my home, I don't have to worry so much about whether my water is going to water pipe is going to burst because there's a sudden freeze because I can put a device in there that will monitor that and warn me or automatically turn off the water and so on and it can only do that because of all of this interconnectivity it's something that when I was growing up it was just total science fiction that you would have those kinds of devices this was the kind of stuff they promised us on the Jetsons you know we didn't get flying cars we did get robot vacuum cleaners and we got these uh, you know remote kind of monitors where we can control things from far away and so on. And that's a, a really marvelous, marvelous technology. And it's something that is there because of the way the internet invites this connectivity, this very plastic um, sort of stuff. It has threats as well, right? The shutdown that just only recently happened because of a ransom demand on the gasoline uh, pipeline uh, in the eastern half of the United States. Many people uh, responded to that by saying, how could they possibly have had that thing online? The short answer is, well, <laughs> it's a network of networks. The chances that you're going to keep a network from connecting to another one is approximately zero. And the idea that we're going to have the world divided up into these rigidly separate things is, in my opinion, unrealistic. And I think it's unrealistic because there's almost an imperative, right? When you can connect things together, 
you immediately see what all the benefits are going to be from being able to connect those things together because you can do all kinds of remote management things that you couldn't have done before. The pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a great example of that. There have been a whole number of opportunities that people have been able to take advantage of online that they couldn't have done even five years earlier because we just didn't have the kind of infrastructure necessary to do it. Now, it exposed lots of problems too, but it exposed this ability that we have to be adaptive because we can hook things together and that allows us to access things that we other we didn't used to be able to do. You know, you had to go into the office because it was the only way to get these files. Well, it's not anymore. Positive effect of that is you can get that work, you can work from home and you cannot get sick and you cannot die. And that seems like a pretty big positive. The downside is other people can probably get into those files too. And you're going to have to think pretty hard about that. And you're going to have to think about what the consequences are. Everything is gradually connecting to one another. There are a lot of people in the world right now who are trying to figure out how do we make that stop? I feel a lot of the time, you know, people in the early days of the automotive industry who keep hearing from the people who say, no, you have to have a guy walking in front of your car with the lantern warning everybody that you're coming with this giant, terrible machine. And in some senses, of course, cars remain terrible machines. Pedestrians die from them all the time and so on. And we made all kinds of sacrifices in order to accommodate the automobile. On the other hand, this was a technology that hugely transformed things. And it's tough to argue that we didn't get a lot of productivity benefits out of having automobiles. Uh, and I think that it would be hard to argue that, you know, you could have stopped this technology from being used. There are certain technologies that once they are invented, you can't really not have them anymore. They don't go away until something new comes along and replaces them completely. One lens to apply to think about what the internet enables is uh, agency, the ability to affect an outcome. What are your frameworks for, I guess, breaking down what this means for humanity? We do have a struggle going on here, right? Because there are people who have a lot of interest in either breaking that agency or owning it for their own purposes. There's no question, right, that we have governments in the world who desperately want people not to have the communication capability that the internet enables. And that's why we see shutdowns. That's why we see all kinds of national firewalls. That's why we hear all of this nonsense about digital sovereignty and so on. Most of that digital sovereignty stuff is really digital sovereignty against the citizens, but the government gets to do whatever they want with it because it's connectivity they want. Well, that's not what we're talking about, right? What that really is, is control of who gets to use this tool. It's the same story as ever. It's not a technical question at all. None of that is, is technology. That's all about social policy. Who gets to be in charge of this thing? It's power. Similarly, there are corporate interests and, and organizational interests that desperately want to own the entire the entire experience that you have. They don't want this to be a tool for your freedom. They want to take the tool for freedom that has been invented, and they want to turn it back into broadcast television where you can sit down and watch the three channels at the time that the channel programmers decide. Uh, and if you don't like what's on, well, too bad for you. I don't think that that's a better world. I don't think that the world as centrally managed by a few great and good people is really a better, a better existence. So I think that we need to work very hard to defend the real internet and to remind people that it is this tool um, for power. But what that, of course, also means is people have to give up, at least some people have to give up the ease and comfort of the walled garden, the well-maintained park, 
and go out and actually go camping in the wilderness. They're going to have to do that. And we're going to have to have more people who are willing to camp in the wilderness um, because it turns out that that's going to be good for understanding of the internet itself, the ability to use this thing to recombine stuff in unexpected ways. The corporations who are clamoring these days for regulation of large tech corporations, they are not asking for regulation just because they recognize that it's politically necessary now for their own interest. The large incumbent in a regulated industry is an incumbent, and they get to live there fairly comfortably for a long period of time. AT&T was a large, a large, very tightly regulated incumbent for most of the 20th century in the United States. And it profited pretty handsomely from that, despite the fact that there were whole lines of business that they weren't allowed to go into because of that. They invented the Unix operating system, which underlies most of the infrastructure that we're using today, including every MacBook and like the, the iPhone and all of that stuff that's all based on this Unix technology that was invented at Bell Labs. Bell was not allowed to sell that thing because of a consent decree, because of the amount of money that they were making from the telephone system. That was the, the regulation. that, And they were willing to give it up because the reality of being the regulated incumbent is great. It's a great business to be in. Nobody can come and take your toys. We have to be alert to this possibility because it's not the only answer. I really feel like there are places where it's pretty clear we're going to have to do some regulation of of various corporate behavior, but it's not clear to me that regulating the internet or regulating the way the internet works in order to achieve that end is a good idea because it's most likely to cement the advantages of the largest corporations um, that we have right now and, and make it hard for other people to come along and displace them. Are you advocating more grassroots activism? Yeah, I think that we need people who really believe in the internet. And the Internet Society wants those people to come and be members and join us in building and promoting and defending the internet and the real internet that you know we believe in. Those critical properties that are so important for making sure that we have this technology, that we have this technology. This is an inheritance that has been left to us. You know, you spoke to Vint Cerf. He is one of the people who invented this technology, but I am younger than that generation. And I wasn't there at the start. But what I am watching is something that I got exposed to earlier in my life. And now I'm watching it gradually be taken away. The things that we used to have are being closed off. It's like a giant enclosure movement that happened uh, to Commons land in, in England in the you know centuries ago, that things that used to be shared are now owned by the Lord of the Manor, and we're not going to get to use them except by the sufferance that we get from the lords. I don't think that's a trade that we ought to make. I think we ought to push back against it. That is one of the challenges. What are the other challenges in your mind? Well, there remains an enormous challenge of connecting people. A little under half the world's population does not have access to the internet at all. Even in some of the richest places in the world, that is true. In the United States, in Canada, in various parts of Europe, there are these pockets of places that are either just not served at all or very desperately underserved. So in Canada, where I come from, the north of the country is very, very lightly populated. The population of Canada is roughly the same as that of California, and it's the second largest country in the world. That means that there's an awful lot of places where there's nobody there. 
it's not profitable to run fiber to those places. It's very expensive to run it there too, because the, the environmental conditions are bad. That's an area that is very difficult uh, to connect. And this is a pattern that we can see all over the place, although the local conditions are different. There are economic reasons why people don't connect it as well. We need to worry about that to a, a great deal. And we need to worry about the understanding that people have of this technology, this problem that we think of the internet as a simple, single thing that is, uh, is, can be manipulated in the way that, the way that we like. Uh, this is a mistake that people make a lot of the time about technologies, right? That they think, well, we invented this thing so we can change it however we want. But that's not the nature of technologies. I, I love this aphorism by John Culkin. We shape our tools and thereafter they shape us. That there's a point at which once you've invented a thing and it goes into the world, it's now a part of the world and you can't just arbitrarily change it anymore because it's established some realities. You can think of the automobile as having done that. The automobile has totally remade geography in a lot of places. And we can't undo that. Even if we want to live a car-free life, it is extraordinarily hard now to do that because we're just dependent on the car and dependent on the airplane that brings the freight uh, you know, to the airport. And, and the airport is way far away, so you've got to have a car to bring things in and so on. Even if you think you're living a life without a car, you're still dependent on this entire network that is just part of the reality of the world that you live in now. And I think that that is a fact about the internet. And yet we're manipulating it or we're trying to manipulate it in ways that are almost not taking into account the ways in which it can and cannot bend. And I think that that's a, a huge challenge for the internet because people will build things that will break the internet in ways that will deny us all this ability to use it. Extending the challenges, maybe speak about social or economic or even political trust, privacy lens to, to it. There's no question that large transformative technologies bring huge social change. There's a wonderful book called Fighting Traffic uh, about the introduction of the car into cities in North America. And it follows the way in which the city completely reimagined itself. In the 1890s, if you said your kid to your kid, go and play in the street, that was not a threat. That was a good idea. That's where you played. If you were, a, if you were an urban child, you played in the street. It was a normal thing to do. If you told your child today, go and play in the street, the family and children's services would pay you a visit, right? That's not an okay thing to do because it's dangerous. We made that social change. We adjusted our expectations of people because of this technology. And that is one of the things that's one of the stresses that's going to face us all with the internet, that the internet is challenging our assumptions about what these things are. There are undoubtedly privacy concerns related to the way that we're using the internet and the way that we connect uh, people and connect all of these cameras and so on. Some of those challenges are going to be addressed. I don't know what they are because I don't have this kind of crystal ball, but I'm sure that some of those challenges are going to be addressed by people changing their expectations rather than the technology changing. We're at the stage right now where people are still trying to outlaw some of these technologies. They're trying to say, no, this is too great an invasion, just as people tried to outlaw billboards by the side of the road on highways because it was, it, it was, a, it was marring the landscape. And what we came up with in the end was a mix of these things, right? We had 
we, we developed social rules about where those things could be. And there's a constant tension about it, right? In lots of cities, this ever encroaching sort of billboards getting bigger and bigger and bigger and flashier and flashier. And then somebody comes along and says, ah, that's too distracting. It's too dangerous, whatever. We have a thesis, antithesis and synthesis sort of movement uh, about these kinds of things. I think the same thing is going to happen uh, with a number of these, uh, a number of these issues. I don't know how it's going to change. I wish I had really good predictions um, for those kinds of things. Of course, if I had those kinds of predictions, I'd be really rich. But I feel like there's no question that this is now part of a social conversation that we're not going to be able to say, no, that thing just has to be unplugged. But we are at a moment right now, culturally, where a lot of people seem to think, no, we should really just unplug this thing. And I think that that is an attempt to stick our heads in the sand. We did speak about the adoption of internet. Where do you think the next big leap will come from to make sure, I don't know if it's presumptuous to think if it's a foregone conclusion that every human will have internet, where will that next leap come from to make sure that happens? Or is that even a goal? Uh, Well, it's a goal for me anyway, not maybe every human, but every human who wants it. I do think this is a voluntary technology. You don't have to have it. I think that uh, more and more people are going to be connected. And I think that more and more people want this connectivity because I think that it's a profoundly human technology. I mean, we, we talk about it in these technical terms, but actually what it's really about is connecting and reaching out to other people and communicating with them, having these kinds of conversations, the ability to, to talk to people thousands of miles away, the ability to exchange goods with people who are very far away from you. I was in one uh, very remote place where a person was telling me about how everybody in their, in their place could make a certain good and everybody knew how to do it. It was a shared skill. And so you didn't, there was no way to sell anything for that. And this was an opportunity to sell that to people outside of their geography. It resulted in currency income within that community. And this person just regarded that as an obvious good. And I think that that's a, that's a thing that, you know, we have to remember that despite the challenges that the internet keeps presenting us with, it also offers us this opportunity to talk to people that we never could have met in the life before the internet. We just didn't have any hope of that. And to expose ourselves to points of view that we couldn't have understood. I think, for instance, that some of the post-colonial discussions that we're having now, some of the recognition of, you know, many of the problems that um, came from the colonial history that much of the world um, is struggling with, I think a lot of that comes from being exposed to new ideas, the ability of people who otherwise would have not had access to the the sort of ability to broadcast their view or something. Suddenly, all of these people have this ability to, um, to get it out. And maybe not everybody hears it at the beginning, but it's a way that allows us to put those things across. So I think that this is an opportunity for uh, for us as humans. And in order to get there, we're going to have to make sure that other people who want this uh, access uh, can have it. I think low Earth orbit satellite is obviously promising. It's an interesting question whether that's something that should be run for the profit of a single corporation for the whole world. And maybe that will be an interesting public policy question in the near future because there's only so much space for satellites up there. We can't really build like five or six competing low Earth orbit satellite uh, things. We'll have a lot of collisions. And it's a very expensive way to do it, uh, actually. Right, we're talking about this as the as the magic solution. It's a, a real indictment. There was a an article recently on the on the web about this. It's a real indictment of people 
that we have failed to do a lot of this terrestrial connectivity, that our solution to this has been to try to do it from space, possibly the most expensive way to do anything, just to send rockets. So that's a, a lesson for us that we can do these kinds of things and we can maybe make solutions that are a little more human oriented. What does the future of internet look like? Well, I wish I had a, a an easy answer. I think in one important sense, it remains this deeply human system. It ultimately only happens because people want to connect with one another. They want to reach one another. They want to, they want that commonality. And people have been doing this for eons. All of, like there's an awful lot of history of exploitation when people communicate with one another and so on. But there's another part of that contact when you see colonizing people um, meet someone else or whatever, which is exchange and welcoming and, and sharing and so on. I would like to believe that we could find our path towards those happy things, remind ourselves of the dangers of the sort of colonial rapacious mindset and recognize that the other part of this is, hey, I've got something that you want and you've got something that I want and we can learn something from one another. And this is our opportunity to do this. The internet is an opportunity to do that without everybody getting on airplanes and polluting the whole atmosphere for everybody else. What is the alternative? Is there an alternative to the internet? What's the counterfactual? The dark story is that the internet does become a sort of closely managed, centrally planned utility that is decided for most of humanity by a small priesthood of people who get to decide what connectivity looks like for everybody else. I think it's a terrible vision, but I think it's possible. What motivates you? You know, the Internet Society has this slogan, uh, our vision, the Internet is for everyone. I gained just so much from the from the simple experience of getting online. It was it was completely transformative in my lifetime. And I want to make sure that other people have that opportunity. So that's what gets me going. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? It's funny. I've been thinking about this question because it's it's such a, uh, I, I am by nature, I think, a contrarian. But one is, you know, this is very dependent on the on the community. But one is that Canada should open its borders really radically and vastly expand its uh, population in order to be a sustainable place to live. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking career or life? My father was really adamant that you could learn uh, essentially anything by reading about it and then practicing. Uh, so much so that he frequently would tell me like before I could read to go and look words up in the dictionary. That was one really important thing. And actually, I will say that my ex-wife, uh, her name was Jill LeBlanc, uh, she had a huge influence on my approach to, to knowing and learning. What are you currently reading? I am currently reading a book called Constantine the Empire by David Potter. And uh, I've got another one that I just started, um, The Anarchy by William uh, um, Dalrymple. I think that there's a lot of history that is relevant to the internet. And so that's, that's why I actually, why I'm reading those things. I recently read uh, another book about uh, similar history, Merchant Kings, When Companies Ruled the World from 1600 to 1900 uh, by Stephen Brown. I will say I was a little less pleased with that than I'd hoped to be, but still an interesting period of history. Who are your favorite writers or podcasters? 
I love a Mark Kurlansky book, and I will read anything at all by Ingrid Burrington. I, I think she's got this sort of penetrating curiosity that we should all take as an inspiration. And there's a, a little company out of Toronto called uh, Canada Land, and they put together a bunch of podcasts that I enjoy very much. But that might be a niche interest because of my Canadian nature. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at Luminary FM. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company, or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.